0: That's right, get 55% off at babbel.com slash s-p-p. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash s-p-p. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm John Rojas, and some of you might be saying, whoa, didn't expect to hear you so soon, and some of you actually didn't hear me last episode because, well, we kind of screwed up. We released an episode a little bit too early, so we had to pull it down, but to make up for it, we are going to rebroadcast a interview from 2014 with Andrew Yang. Why, you may ask? Well, I mean, it's pretty cool talking to a presidential candidate before they became a presidential candidate, so we thought it'd be interesting to re-air the interview just so you could hear what Andrew was talking about in 2014 and... We were talking to him about his his book, Smart People Should Build Things, which still to this day is one of my favorite books. So check it out if you haven't. And don't worry, we'll be back on our regular interview schedule on November 4th. So look for a new episode then. And please enjoy this rebroadcast of our interview with Andrew Yang
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations for your curious mind. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Stemp. And I'm the other host, John Rojas. Guys, we got a good one today. This author, fire starter, entrepreneur has been in the news for his newest book, which is called Smart People Should Build Things. How to restore our culture of achievement, build a path for entrepreneurs and create new jobs in America. Take that in. Yeah, it's that's a long one though, man. It that's is, but a...
0: it's oh, it's amazing. It's such a good book. And I apologize ahead of time for gushing so much during the interview, but
1: you did. I
0: I love this book. I am going to say it's my top book for 2014.
1: Nice. Yeah, and two months in. <laughs> we'll put a we'll put a link to it up on smartpeoplepodcast.com. We are interviewing Andrew Yang who not only did he write this book but more importantly he's the founder of Venture for America which Venture for America it's a really incredible business model they basically take top talent coming out of universities and they send them to startups located in cities such as Vegas, New Orleans, Detroit and these fellows spend two years growing these companies and learning how to become entrepreneurs. So it's basically putting people into these places to allow them to excel. It's a fantastic model. And as John just mentioned, he goes through it in his book and there's a lot of really great insight in there.
0: Yeah, and it was so easy to relate to Andrew. I mean, I feel like we are in the same position that he was in when he first started working. But again, I highly recommend this book. Check it out smart people should build things. Not only did Andrew write an amazing book, but he's also the founder and CEO of Venture for America. He was the CEO and president of Manhattan GMAT prior to them getting bought by Kaplan and Washington Post. And he started a couple other businesses that, as he mentioned,
1: failed, but he learned a ton. So if you enjoy this interview, head on over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Let us know shoot us a note. Also, if you guys haven't been getting our newsletters or haven't heard elsewhere on social media, John and I did just launch chrisstemp.com. That is my name, but John basically put it together. And it deals with a lot of the things we talk about in this interview as well. It's kind of about finding that thing that gets you going and moves you every day. So head on over, check that out as well. And now we're going to turn it over to Andrew.
2: Isn't it deranged the sort of things where we're putting our smart people through? It's like this elaborate arc, which in my case was a similar length to what you guys described, where it's like law school, practice law, hate it, have this debt, being like, what the hell? And uh, you know, it's like I I saw a bunch of my friends go through it too, and it's like, and some of them never came out the other end. You know, and some of them are freaking miserable. Actually, most of them are miserable. My brother
0: actually just graduated from George Mason and he's looking for jobs and he keeps texting me asking me for advice on all these consulting interviews he's going on. And yesterday I sent him a text message, watch Andrew Yang's TEDx speak at Georgetown, then talk to me. I keep trying to get him not to go look at these consulting firms because he's young and I don't want to make the same mistake that I did.
2: What could someone have done that would have kept me from going to law school? And for years I thought there's nothing anyone could have done. Uh, (laughs) And it was only really upon thinking about Venture for America did I realize that what would have kept me from going to law school potentially is if someone provided a concrete alternative, uh, perhaps something like a two-year fellowship program where you'd work at a startup and and learn how businesses get built. And that only when you provide something concrete will people turn away from uh, what they're being presented right now because you can't ask them to not do something and then not have – an alternative for them. Um, you know, because you, it's hard to argue the negative. You can't present the negative. And so really only when we realized that you needed a, a pathway to early stage enterprising and companies and that Venture for America could provide it, uh, did I finally answer the question, what could someone have done that would have kept me from going to law school?
1: And I think that's such a great point because I oftentimes talk to John about the fact that the cliche is, Young people don't want to really listen to their elders, if you call them that. And I actually believe you have to learn a lot from your own experiences. So as you mentioned, you can't just say, don't do it, trust me. But I never knew the answer either. And what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Present them with that alternative.
2: Yeah, because then you can give them a genuine choice. And certainly one of the reasons why I wrote this book and started Venture for America is that right now we're not giving our young people genuine choices. Uh, like the, the choices that they're being presented with are financial services, management consulting, law school, med school, grad school and Teach for America. And if you look at those six choices, which will comprise between 50 and 65 percent of uh, top university graduates, four of them have very, very clear application processes. Uh, and that's law school, med school, grad school and Teach for America, where there's no mystery as to how to apply. And law school is, is to me, the most dramatic because it's hovering like a cloud over 20-something-year-olds. And if you get in, then the government will give you a $100,000 loan over three years to pay for it. And then to finish the picture, finance and consulting, those industries and firms spend millions of dollars educating the market and recruiting every year. So really, they turn it into like a virtual application where as long as you're uh, somewhat on the ball and, you, you know, you get into the process early enough, it's a similar kind of pathway. And so those six paths are absorbing between 50 and 65% of our our top people. And if you look at the alternative around, let's say, starting your own company or working at a startup, those things are much, much harder to find. And typically, no one's going to just wait there with like a $100,000 loan for you if you decide to do your own thing. So it's it's no mystery that so many people are heading down the the well-lit paths because they're very much the paths of least resistance right now.
1: Everybody knows, for the most part, humans are risk averse. So you go to college and whether you're paying for it or your parents are paying for it, you're taking on this debt and your brain is wired to say, if you do this, it will be less risky. You will make money. You can buy nice things. You can find a mate and live happily ever after. But that's just the ideal. As we know, it very rarely happens like that.
2: Well, well, certainly, right now the conventional paths are getting less and less secure, mm-hmm. and you you can see that. And uh, you know, I'll speak to law school one because it's the most stark, and two because I have the most direct personal experience with it. So for me, when I graduated from Columbia, then worked at at Davis Polk, it was, and I, I was lucky on a, a couple of levels. I mean, it was a good time to be graduating, and you know, like I had multiple offers because that economy was quite good. But what uh, what hit me was that the nature of the work I was doing was Uh, just a bad fit for me on multiple levels and like I I was the embodiment of a transaction cost where if you could imagine these very large gears turning I was like the grease on the gears designed just to keep the wheel turning Uh, and then if you had a deal that was worth tens of millions of dollars then it's worth it to pay the law firm uh, you know 1.2 million or whatever it is to like uh, get the paperwork done which means it's worth it to pay young Andrew you know like 140,000 or whatever it was to to make sure that that all, all looked okay but that it really didn't matter if it was me or someone else in that role uh and certainly for me I figured out I actually remember this this time when I was like why am I doing this job if I if, if it's such a bad fit and I'm not enjoying it and so I thought well it must be because they're paying me a lot of money for you know a 24 year old with no experience And so I remember vividly going to Bloomingdale's and just buying stuff to be like, okay, I'm doing this job for the money. Like, I guess I should go shopping and see if that does something for me. So I I went and I bought like some clothes and I bought my, my, my family, some presents and I went home and I was like, that did very little for me. (laughs) And then I think I quit the job like a, a few months later. So it's, and when you talk about like the risk aversion that builds up, it's like the risks that we don't talk about are the risks of, waking up and doing a job you don't like, uh, of waking up and looking in the mirror and, and not feeling good about yourself because you know you're not actually engaged with what you're doing day to day, with becoming increasingly risk-averse and having life obligations build up to the point where you're genuinely constrained in the choices you make. Um, so, so those are the risks that people don't tell you about. Like the risks that they, they, you think about is that you're somehow going to fall in a ditch and starve to death, you know, which is something I also learned is that after I started a company and it failed, it turns out you don't starve. You don't die. Like no one comes and takes your stuff <laughs> like, like things are we need to repackage the way our young people think about risks and, and think about uh, like the more subtle risks that don't get discussed.
1: For those that aren't aware, could you just briefly tell us about what Venture for America is? Because I'd like to talk much more in depth on it, but I know that there are some people that don't know what it is.
2: Well, sure. So Venture for America is a nonprofit organization that I started in 2011 that recruits top college graduates from around the country that want to learn how to build businesses and become entrepreneurs, and it pairs them with existing startups and more experienced entrepreneurs in cities around the country where they work for two years. So let's say uh, if there's someone who's graduating from Brown this year, where I went back in the day, and they want to be an entrepreneur, but they're not sure what that first step should look like. If we select them for the program, they'll then come to a five-week training camp that's attended by experienced investors and entrepreneurs, as well as McKinsey and IDEO and and, uh, Harvard Business School professors. And then they'll move in a group of typically between 8 and 12 people to, let's say, Philadelphia. And they'll work for a Philadelphia startup for a couple of years, helping that company develop and get built. And at the end of their two-year stint, uh, they can stay with that company as it grows, or they can potentially even start their own enterprise. And we have uh, a seed investment fund of between half a million and a million uh, to invest in enterprises that the fellows start. And Jeff Wiener, the CEO of LinkedIn, is is one of the investors that's agreed to look at uh, investing in in companies that the fellows start. So the shorthand for it all is, is like it's like Teach for America for U.S. startups.
1: It warms my heart so much. I mean, we talked about it a little before we started recording, but it's such a beautiful model. And I just wish it was around back in the day. But I love the fact that you're doing it. One of the questions I had was, you talk about training top college graduates, and I'd imagine some people will say, how do you define a top college graduate? Is this limited to only Ivy League?
2: Well, we don't believe that any set of institutions have like you know a, a monopoly on talent, for sure. I mean, there are smart people everywhere. There are a lot of smart people who don't graduate from college or even high school. And our fellows, I'm happy to say, do come from a relatively diverse set of institutions where we have people from Uh, University of Oklahoma, University of Maryland, like public universities all over the place. We have a former Marine who served in Afghanistan and and came back and finished his degree at uh, UC Santa Barbara, and he's now in Detroit working for Dan Gilbert's operation. So we don't have any illusions about the fact that talent is everywhere. But, you know, if you're uh, an institution with limited resources um, the way we are, then we do tend to recruit at national universities, and and, uh, a lot of the people that come through our program are highly qualified from a conventional standpoint, uh, in part because we think that the virtues that allow one to excel in in a, let's say, an academic or extracurricular, athletic even setting, they all apply pretty well to early stage companies. Uh, We don't think that startups are something special in the sense that you need to be like just super creative or super entrepreneurial, uh, that if you're just very strong and good at certain things, then we think you can learn to be good at activities that help startups succeed.
0: Let's take a quick break for a word from one of our sponsors. If you're still using one of the big wireless providers in 2019, have you asked yourself what you've been paying for? Between expensive retail stores, inflated prices, and hidden fees, you're being taken advantage of because they know you'll pay. Enter Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile provides the same premium network coverage you're used to, but at a fraction of the cost because everything is online. Mint Mobile saves on retail locations and overhead, and passes those savings directly to you. I've had Mint Mobile service for about four or five months now, and I can honestly say the coverage is better than when I had AT&T. It's just absolutely phenomenal. And I always have access to fast data. Mint Mobile makes it easy to cut your wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text. With Mint Mobile, stop paying for unlimited data you'll never use. Choose between plans with 3, 8, or 12 gigabytes of 4G LTE data. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. Ditch your old wireless bill and start saving with Mint Mobile. So listen up. To get your new wireless plan for just $15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com smart. That's mintmobile.com. Dot com slash smart. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash smart. And now back to the episode.
1: I really like that actually, because you say in your book that being a, an entrepreneur and running a startup isn't as much about creativity, having the best idea. It's about running an organization. And at that fundamental level, it comes down to the people. And I think you're reiterating that and saying, oftentimes the people that do kind of excel in the academic environment, although it might not be perfect, you have to show a certain amount of work ethic and flexibility and creativity and all the things which are very similar.
2: Yeah, very much so. It's that that if you're looking for people who are gonna perform very high, highly in a particular context, let's say an early stage company, if I tell you, hey, this person performed really highly in this other context, you'll at least like take a second to think like, huh, Like, maybe that can translate. Like, if I tell you that someone was the captain of their national champion rugby team in college, as one of our fellows was, you might think that person is sort of rugged, determined, resilient, high work ethic, probably a good team player. And all of those things actually happen to apply to that particular individual. Um, If I tell you someone had a 4.0 in engineering physics uh, you know, you might think a cer- certain set of things about them and they actually, again, happen to be accurate. <laughs> so, so it's, uh, you know, there there are cues you can take uh, from someone's prior experience that might lead you to think they'd be a good fit.
0: I'm going to ask you a really selfish question here because, you know, Venture for America is fantastic for kids coming out of out of college. What about those people that are in the situation such as myself or... Chris, where we we identified that our career path wasn't the right fit and are now kind of starting over and want to get involved into these startups or growth companies, whatever they may be. Do you guys accept people out of college as well? Or is this only pulling from top college talent?
2: Well, first, let me say that I lived what you guys are living through. Because when I left the law to start a dot com back in 2001, I was much like you, where there was no program, uh, and you know, in, in my case, that company did not work out, and uh, it was quite painful. You know, I, I lost <laughs> our, our investors, some money, and uh, people were quite sad at the time. I was sad. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> then, and in my case, what I did is what I advise most people to do um, was that I picked myself up, and I said, okay. I need to get better at this, and the way to get better at something typically is to find someone who's really good at it and support them and learn from them. So I joined another startup company uh, as VP of something other for a number of years, and then joined another company that eventually became the CEO of an education company. Uh, but that that you know that was like a six-year gap between when my company went under uh, and and when that uh, more senior opportunity came up. So first, let me say that you know venture for america is a thing uh, and it's my attempt at trying to solve this set of issues systemically and we had to pick a particular population but i've lived through what you're describing and it's certainly not easy uh, it's it's nothing you know there's there's not a not like a, a silver bullet or anything but what you guys are doing right now it strikes me is exactly right, which is you're building something really cool of your own that that you can invest your time and energy into, and that even if that particular thing does not become uh, this successful enterprise, which it may, it may not. But you, you, I'm sure, and this is true of you guys, you've already learned and developed so much even in this past number of months going down this road. And the second thing, which I, I heard from John, is that you know you're developing some skills. Uh, technically, and then you're trying to find an outfit you can join, which is exactly what I did. Like, I joined a, a company uh, that was led by someone that I thought I could learn from. Um, and in some cases, you learn what to do. In some cases, you learn what not to do. But uh, the, one of the things that certainly the book emphasizes is that people make too much of the founding role of, of an organization, and that for most people, the right thing to do in most instances is to try and find a good team to join.
0: That's actually my favorite quote from your book. I was going through it on my Kindle last night, and I highlighted that exact phrase where it was, the plan should not be, for the most part, start a company. More realistically, it should be join a team. And I absolutely love that. I was talking to Chris about that right before the interview because I think it is the right thing. It's that apprenticeship model, and it's probably what's going to get this country back on track if we start going back to that. Because I know we used to do it way back in the day, but you don't see it that much anymore.
2: Yeah, and, and, and people again make way too much of the, the entire founder CEO thing. Like if I weren't right now doing what I'm doing, I'd be happy to join someone's team. <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's, like, it's not like there's there's like something uh, you know, super I, I think most anyone who's been part of a good team is like uh happy to, to slot in at like different uh different roles and different times and different organizations. So you know, there's not, you know, I mean, not only would I recommend it, I would certainly do it myself.
1: Sure. Yeah. Now, one of the things I want to ask is I know that part of what you do at Venture for America is you send these individuals to the startups and oftentimes they're in cities that it's not a DC, it's not a San Francisco or Chicago. Is that a struggle sometimes to, do you have to convince people or are the people you're working with just like, this is what I want to do. I don't care. Put me there.
2: Well, I think for people who apply to Venture for America, obviously, that there's a a level of geographic flexibility involved because they're not sure exactly where they'll be living and working after they get into the program. And we take preferences into account, and it's in our interest to help people go someplace they have some kind of attachment or network. But most people see Venture for America as kind of this uh, adventure, if you will, or certainly a period of exploration for a couple of years where if I were to say to someone, "Hey, you might wind up at a startup in New Orleans or Philadelphia uh, or Providence," uh, and each of those has very you know a different set of life experiences attached to it, I think most of the people that apply to Venture for America are excited about the possibilities. But certainly, if if you're wedded to being in a particular environment, then you know you might not end up applying to us, which uh, is totally cool. I mean, you know, people should do what they feel is going to sustain them.
1: It's just such an interesting model. And I was telling somebody prior to the interview, I said, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to talk to Andrew Yang. And their response really was, I think, perfect. They said, one of the reasons I love him is because he doesn't just go out there and talk about it. He built a company around his beliefs. And I think that's very unique. And I also think it's very refreshing as, you know, the generation of talking heads or the research articles now that are being so publicized like with the Malcolm Gladwell's blank you know everybody wants to write this great book but you are doing it so was that something that just you said I have to change this not I'm gonna tell other people how to change
2: it (laughs) you know uh, a book review came out a couple weeks ago that was generally very positive but it said uh, it was like a dig the book could be perceived as a thinly veiled promotional vehicle for the organization. (laughs) And, and I was thinking like, what veil? Like I thought it was a completely transparent (laughs) promotional vehicle for the organization. You know, that's that's great. great. Like, I mean, I, I'm someone who, I think, you know, saw a a pressing problem that affects all of us. It affects our our economy. It affects our our cities and communities. And, you know, on a human level, it's a tragedy that we have tons of smart people heading to the same handful of things, whether or not it might be a fit, whether or not it's necessarily good for the economy or the country. So I saw that as a problem and said, okay, how do you solve that problem? It's like, well, you know, here's an organization to try and solve it. And the book is very much an instrument for the organization. You know, it's like uh, I – now understand my role as the head of a nonprofit. You know I have certain things I must do, but I, I'm something of an accidental head of a nonprofit, and I'd say I'm something of an accidental author in that I realized that uh, documenting and uh, putting out the ideas behind what we're building here would be important. But I agree with you guys. Where like if there's a difference between like building and talking about something. Um, people confuse talking about something with action, and like I, I you know, I I hope that I never. Make that mistake.
0: I think it's funny that somebody actually made that dig about it being a commercial for Venture for America. Because when you look at documentaries, there's a documentary on Apple or Google or whoever. Nobody ever is like, oh, I I can't believe we just watched this two-hour commercial on whoever it may be. I don't know. I just I look at the book, and you were very forthcoming in it, saying that you are at Venture for America, the solution to the problem that you (laughs) recognize, is Venture for America. And then, you know, talked about what Venture for America has done and what you want it to do in the future. So it's just surprising that they said that it was
2: thinly veiled. <laughs> yeah, because you guys read it. It's like, mm-hmm. I was like, it's, it's totally out there. You know, it's like, I'm, but I, I'm with you guys. I think I say in the book at one point that writing about something is a heck of a lot easier than doing it now, which, which is was very much the case for me.
1: I was going to say, how do you feel after writing the book? Because people do say it's pretty difficult.
2: You know, I mean, this book... Like writing this book was really, to me, a very natural process because some of the ideas had come up uh, in earlier environments, uh, you know, like as it relates to Venture for America. So it, it was like, it was very much compiling ideas and, and perspectives more than trying to dig something up from scratch, I'm happy to say.
1: I'm big on trying to find trends. I like, we do it throughout listening to different guests and everything. When you look at where you're placing your fellows and you talk to them, I'm sure you keep in touch with them. Do you notice some commonalities? Do they give you the same feedback? Do they end up uh, realizing the same things? Because dealing with so many entrepreneurs and people aspiring to be entrepreneurs, I'm sure you hear the good, the bad, the ugly, the wins. I'm wondering what those might be.
2: Uh, it's really invigorating stuff. I mean, the, our fellows are doing great work at their companies and some of them are already scheming actively or even starting companies of their own. And the, the environments really are very, very supportive uh, in part because the communities aren't that enormous. Like if you look at the innovation community in a place like Baltimore or Providence uh, or Detroit, people know each other and you can get to the, uh, the resources and the powers that be pretty straightforwardly so the the stories that we're getting, I mean I, I can tell you guys stories where you're like oh my god, like that's real and it, and it is real, I mean like four of our fellows in Detroit including that ex-Marine I told you guys about, raised 20000 primarily through crowdfunding and bought a foreclosed mansion that ha- I think has seven bedrooms for $8,200 and now they're rehabbing it uh, for themselves and future fellows to live in, and they, they crowdfunded an additional uh, twenty thousand on top of the original and uh, they spend weekends like tearing stuff up and rebuilding because one of them was an electric one of them was trained as electrical engineer, one used to be a contractor like you know and they they're, and, you know they 're paying some people to do certain things that are a little more complex or uh, dangerous but um, so that 's the kind of stuff that our fellows do literally in their spare time in addition to. Uh, working at their startups and helping them grow. Um, another team raised $40,000 to uh, build this nonprofit that teaches 8th graders in Detroit and New Orleans entrepreneurship. Uh, and they, they've already run their program in, in three different schools and, uh, and like, are experimenting with like, a new pilot for this coming spring. So like, if you put really talented young people in an environment where they can access leaders uh, and get some resources in, in place. Like they'll, they'll do amazing things. Uh, it's, it's been awesome to see.
0: And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. If anyone listens to the podcast on a regular basis, you know about my health journey. I've bounced from diet to diet, tried CrossFit, and a million other things. Even on certain diets, sometimes I just didn't feel right, and I always wanted to dig in to figure it out. That's why I was so excited to find out about EverlyWell. I took their food sensitivity test and found out that I have a high sensitivity to cow's milk. Who knew? And now I eat accordingly. EverlyWell offers more than 30 at-home lab tests from food sensitivity to thyroid to STD and heart health tests. Each EverlyWell collection kit comes with super easy to follow instructions. Collect your sample from home on your own time. Once you send your sample back, it's processed in a certified lab. Your results are reviewed by a board certified physician then they are sent directly to you digitally within just days. You can even share them with your healthcare provider. The EverlyWell digital platform helps break down exactly what your results mean for you. Plus, you can also set up a free discussion with a healthcare professional directly through the EverlyWell platform. To start learning more about your health like I did, check out EverlyWell at-home lab tests today. For 15% off an EverlyWell at-home lab test, visit everlywell.com slash smart people and enter code smart people. That's everlywell.com slash smart people code smart people for 15% off your test. EverlyWell at-home lab tests. Your answers, your way. And now back to the episode. It actually makes me feel a lot more confident in the future of America because people always talk about, you know, we, we really have moved from producing things to now producing intellectual capital and ideas, that type of thing. And seeing this resurgence of smart people building things is really cool. Two of the things that I wanted to bring up around like policy and politics, because you you lay out a handful of solutions to this problem. And the two that struck me were introduce human capital allocation as a policy and provide scholarships and loan forgiveness for graduates heading towards growth companies. And both of these are good ideas that focus on policy. Do you guys see any advancement in current policies now? Are you guys working with people on framing these policies, that type of thing? Do you have any hand in that?
2: We do. Uh, we have a, a, a guy in D.C. who's very much plugged into the policy uh, advisors at uh, and uh, the congressional level. I've personally met with five senators, the president, a number of other Congresspeople, both in the states we're operating and others, and everyone's interested in how to improve the innovation landscape, certainly in their own cities and communities. So I- I'm I'm happy to say that uh, there are a lot of people looking at uh, looking at this actively, and certainly some of the education reforms that are right now being considered and even passed relate to this where they're they're looking at trying to make loan data and other things uh, much more transparent and also uh, curtailing some of the more uh, out of whack practices around certain schools charging for degrees that may or may not lead to gainful employment. <laughs> Did you say
1: you've met the president?
2: Did I catch that? Yeah, yeah. I, I was invited to the White House to meet the president. Sorry, I'm, I'm losing track of time a little bit, but it was uh Spring 2012, I suppose. What the hell? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. and you Just like
1: throw that in there. He's like, I met with some people like Obama. Chris
0: isn't <laughs> as far into the book as I, because I mean, I finished it this morning. Your Meeting the President story is phenomenal. So those people picking up the book definitely need to check that out because it's a- I, Yes, I did. There's I'm some d- humor in that there. story too. It's awesome.
2: Oh, uh, thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, no, no
0: problem. I usually don't gush when we talk to, to so our you're, guests you're and authors, but I absolutely <laughs> loved your book. I- I bought it last night. We, we had an intern actually set up this interview for us through a fellowship program. Oh, that's
1: and true.
0: Yeah, and as soon as I got the information on you and I was looking it up, I downloaded your book on my Kindle, and last night I just spent hours reading it and then finished it up this morning and absolutely loved it. Well done on the book. It was, a, it was an easy read. It was a great read, and it was a
1: very inspirational read.
2: Well, thanks so much, man. I'm always excited and impressed if someone's actually read the book. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I never thought about the irony either because, yeah, we, we work with a group called America's Future Workforce, and they do something similar. They they place fellows in uh, jobs, and they ha- they're they a nonprofit, and they pay them a stipend and everything. And that's how the, we basically found out about this and got the interview set up. So it's a full circle. Man, people are doing great things with this model. Yeah,
2: though I, I do want to throw out that we don't pay the, the fellows. The companies pay the fellows. Sure because it needs to be a genuine business investment on their part. And if we were somehow to be subsidizing that, then it, it could distort incentives for people. But Uh, But your point's well taken, and it sounds like a great, a full circle uh, relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: One last thing I wanted to ask you was, with all the entrepreneurs that you see deal with, I'm sure you get to look at people's motivation. And we've kind of touched on people's motivation coming out of school. You know, the three of us basically took highest paying jobs we could. And obviously, money is a motivator. Do you see that often entrepreneurs want to just create something or do they want to build something they believe in you know i look at the app creation phenomenon and it's just people cranking out anything to pander to our just need for constant stimulation to put advertising on there and it really makes me worried so i wonder if you see though people truly want to build things that
2: change the world you know i'm happy to say many many of the entrepreneurs that we see in these other cities have some kind of personal connection or narrative that makes sense, uh, in relation to the problem their company is trying to solve. Like there's a company in new Orleans we work with called kickboard that the founder was a computer science major from Columbia named Jen Medbury. She did teach for America. And then she said, wow, the classroom sure is antiquated. And she came up with a software product that helps teachers monitor student performance in the classroom. It's a uh, Originally it was called Drop the Chalk to give you a sense of <laughs> uh, what, what, she, what she was shooting for. And, and that's a problem she experienced directly and it makes sense. Uh, so I'm, ha- I'm happy to say that a lot of companies resemble that. Uh, certainly Venture for America, and my story, I mean, directionless, uh, brown grad, goes to law school, practices law, thinks it's something of a... Uh, disaster, <laughs> <laughs> and and then you know years later after working in startups for ten to twelve years, uh, wants to build a program to make it as obvious and accessible for young people to head to startups as it currently is for them to become bankers, consultants, or lawyers or, or doctors. You know and that that's like a, a kind of narrative that makes sense, and I'm I'm happy to say that I see that kind of narrative pretty consistently when I, I talk to entrepreneurs in these cities.
1: It makes a lot of sense. While we have you on, and I know you're, since you're in this whole entrepreneurial world, who are your favorite entrepreneurs, companies you're excited about? Is there anything that's caught your eye recently, whether it's Books, articles, companies, just want to see what, what you're enjoying these days.
2: Well, I'm, I'm certainly very aligned with the companies that we work with because our fellows are often working at the companies. And so if the company does well, the fellows do well. Sure. So, so I'll relate a few stories out there from the, the field that I think people are going to find uplifting and exciting. In Providence, there's a company called Teespring that originally people looked at and said T-shirt company. Like, where is that going to go? And what they do is it's a crowdfunded apparel company where let's say you're a nonprofit that wants to print t-shirts. In the old days, you'd have to guess at people's sizes, print 500 t-shirts, you'd spend several thousand dollars and then you'd have to hold the inventory and figure out how to sell them and then hopefully you make money and you're probably left with weird sized t-shirts at the end of it all. <laughs> uh, oh, what, what Teespring does is says, hey, reach out your constituents, have them all uh, say, yes, I want a t-shirt and this is the size. And then after you reach a certain level, then they'll be printed and fulfilled and everyone will get their t-shirt shipped to them and you don't have to do anything all you have to do is and they'll even help you design it so fast forward to today and that company teespring does millions of dollars in apparel per month just raised i believe 10 million dollars at a very high valuation and and have expanded up to 70 employees you know what what starts as a modest idea uh, can become like a significantly sized company a significantly valued company And, uh, you know, when we first met with those guys, it's like a handful of employees in this little office. Hmm. And now you go there and it's like straight out of startup office central casting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And didn't those guys start that because like a restaurant or bar shut down and they wanted to make T-shirts to commemorate it? Wasn't that the story behind
2: that? Yeah, that was the story behind that. And and, uh, yeah, so you can see what like, you know, these things. Um, and, and it was started in Providence. It was, uh, it was a couple of uh, brown grads, uh, but they, they were battle hardened vets already. Like, they'd been trying to start companies for years before then. So, uh, so there, there's, that's a company I'm excited about. There's a company in Cleveland called LineStream that makes software that helps appliance manufacturers operate more energy efficiently, which makes a ton of sense if you think about it. If Like, you're, you know, Cleveland is a manufacturing hub. So everyone talks about green energy. I mean, like if you have factories that manufacture appliances more energy efficiently, I mean that's kind of a huge energy saver. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so, so I mean, these are like real companies tackling real problems. That if they succeed, um, everyone's going to be better off. And and seeing this happen and seeing our fellows grow with these companies is, uh, you know, the best part of my job.
1: That's fantastic. I promise, one last question, <laughs> uh, and, and it can be a really quick answer. What's the, in your opinion, or what you've seen, the hardest part about starting a company, and how do you get over that or through that?
2: You know, I think the book tries to lay this out, but my first company failed pretty uh, miserably, and, and I, I see starting a company as the hardest thing anyone is asked to do. It's one reason why if you're driven by a genuine problem you're trying to solve, it's probably much better because then you'll push through the trials and tribulations a little bit more naturally. Uh, But there's so many hard things about it. Truthfully, you know uh, it's I, when I started adventure for America, I already had a a track record and, and some resources and I thought to myself, like, this is going to be harder than you think it is. <laughs> and it was still harder than that. <laughs> I, you know, that, that probably doesn't come out in the book so much because in the book, it's a little bit of like, hey, this, this happened. But um, th- though, you know, I, though I try and avoid that in the book, because one of the things we're going to, have to do is de- debunk some of the myths around entrepreneurship, where if I say the words, I started a company, it sounds like a magic trick. You know, it's like <laughs> I try to break it down into like all of the micro steps that are involved. I think a lot of it is, uh, a lot of the difficulty is around how isolating it can be. I think having a partner is really helpful, though that has its own set of issues because it's like being in a band Hmm. um, where, you know, like bandmates eventually, you know, sometimes like disagree. But um, when you're doing it, it's extraordinarily isolating uh, and you have to find ways to sustain yourself, uh, particularly in the face of negative reinforcement or lack of positive reinforcement where virtually any company, there's going to be a period of probably months where no one's telling you that you're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and the market's not telling you you're awesome, and your bank account's not telling you you're <laughs> awesome, and your income's not telling you you're awesome. So like, I-, I think that's the hardest part for most people, that there has to be some kind of conviction or belief or just determination to solve the problem that helps you push through that period Particularly when, in some cases, that period does not end in sunshine and rainbows. You know, because like, companies aren't storybooks, and and uh, <laughs> we're not all in movies that that have uh, happy endings. So, like that, that's the the single hardest thing I think is to to find ways to sustain yourself in the absence of positive reinforcement.
1: That's perfect. It's a perfect summation, I think. Just from my experience, even the company I work for, small and it's tough and I love the part you said about, you know, there's going to be a long period of time where nobody tells you you're awesome. And even on top of that, there's going to be more people that tell you you're not awesome or you suck or something like that. Or so, or they
2: just look at you with that look where it's clear <laughs> that there's like some internal eye rolling going on. Right. Yeah. And, and then only afterwards. And this is one of the things that I learned uh, over, over the time is that you just have to leave the door open so that if you do make progress – they can say, "I was here for you the whole time," uh. and, then, and then you can say, "Yes, you were," even though you know it may or may not be true. Because
1: yeah, <laughs> then you have an ally. Can gladly somebody... accept their money if they're investing. Yeah,
2: <laughs> you yeah, just gotta leave that door open. It's a little bit like dating, because like I used to take rejection to heart. Um, you know, when I asked women out, they uh-huh. said no. I was very sad, and you know, wore my heart on my sleeve a little bit. And things got so much better when like I just seemed like I was immune to it because then. <laughs> Um, you know, then they don't feel bad. And then later, maybe they, they change their minds.
1: <laughs> <laughs> actually, it's a, I like the way you tie that all in. Women and entrepreneurship. Makes a lot of sense. Well, it's actually
2: quite similar in, in, in my experience. So, I think, yeah. I,
1: yeah. Andrew, again, John and I are huge fans. Your book, Smart People Should Build Things. It's fantastic. It's doing well, climbing the charts. We were just talking about it where can our listeners go? Do you write often elsewhere? I mean, I know they could search for venture for America and, and kind of learn more about you and what you're doing.
2: Sure. So I, I do write in the venture for America blog. Um, so if you follow us on social media, you'll probably see uh, postings as they come up um, about the book. It has its own website, smart people should Build, which has a number of excerpts as well as some press appearances and, and other things. Uh, and if you go to Amazon, uh, they have one of those first look things that, that, gives you open access to, I think, the first couple of chapters. So certainly, uh, please do follow us on VentureForAmerica.org, uh, and uh, hopefully we can solve this problem. Hopefully we can get more of our smart people building things and not people put people through the same kind of elaborate multi-year transitional arc where they have to look up in their late 20s and try and figure things out. Hopefully we can get people in positions where they can in- engage their careers and uh, contribute and develop earlier than that.
1: Yeah, we love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, totally a narrative that we can follow. Uh, we hope that you do kind of solve this problem. And really, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for talking with us. Uh, we'll put a link to all this stuff right there at smartpeoplepodcast.com best of luck with this. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you guys. And love the name of your podcast. We're, we're two peas in a pod. We're like natural, natural partners in this.
1: I know it. I know it. Smart people unite. You know what I mean? Yeah, agreed. All Let's right. fix
2: this. Come on. We're smart enough to do it. I hope
1: so. You're smart enough. We just want to talk to you. All right, Andrew. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too, guys. All right. Have see. a great one. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.